Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So I said to my crew, I said, look, I can't say you're not going to be hurt or injured, but I can guarantee you one thing. You're going to go to prison if you do what I want you to do. And that is, we're going to go out and we're going to ram that ship. And uh, we're going to end his career right now. If you don't want to participate, you got 10 minutes, pack your bags, get out on the dock because we're all, we're off. Well, 10 minutes later, 17 of them are on the dock, but fortunately the two that stayed <laughs> both engineers. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Andy Rowe Show. Captain Paul Watson was one of the original founders of Greenpeace before a major falling out led to him starting his own conservation society, Sea Shepherd. You're going to hear all about that falling out, plus how his quest to save whales from the slaughter led to him ramming pirate ships at sea, and how he went head-to-head with the Russian Navy. Hope you enjoy the episode. Captain Paul Watson, thanks very much for coming on the show. Thank you. You grew up in a fishing village and have basically been fighting for the ocean your whole life, haven't you? Yeah, about 60 years now. (laughs) Wow. Wow. There was actually a really definitive turning point for you, though, as well, off the coast of California, wasn't there? I think you were working as a maybe as a human shield for Greenpeace back in the day. Yeah, I was with Greenpeace. I was in June of 1975. And uh, we'd come up uh, with this idea to protect the whales by putting our bodies between the harpoons of the whales. We were reading a lot of Gandhi at the time, thought that would work. I found myself in a small inflatable boat with Robert Hunter, and we were blocking a Soviet harpoon vessel. And trying to save uh, eight sperm whales that were fleeing for their life in front of us. And every time the harpooner uh, tried to take a shot, I would maneuver the boat to block him. And that worked for about 20 minutes until the captain came running down the catwalk and screamed into the ear of the uh, harpooner. And then he looked down on us, smiled, and brought his finger across his throat. And that's what I realized. Gandhi wasn't really going to work for us that day. (laughs) A few moments later, it was a horrendous explosion. And this 200-pound harpoon flew over our heads, an explosive harpoon. Jeez. Slammed into the backside of one of the whales. Uh, it was a female. She screamed and rolled on her side. And the largest whale in the pod suddenly slapped the water with his tail and dove. And he swam right underneath of us and threw himself right at the harpoon on the Soviet vessel. But they do that and they're, they expect them to do that. So they had an unattached harpoon ready. And uh, he fired point blank range, hit him in the head. He fell back, uh, you know, rolling in agony on the surface. And as he did, I caught the eye of the whale. And he, he suddenly dove again, and this time I saw a trail of bloody bubbles coming straight uh, towards us. And he came up and out of the water at an angle that the next move would just come crashing down on top of us. And uh, and that was a, a life-changing experience for me because I saw his eye. I was so close, I could see the, my own reflection in his eye. And I saw understanding that the whale understood what we were trying to do because I could see the effort he made to pull himself back. And and then he fell back into the sea as I disappeared beneath the surface and he died. Could have killed both of us, but uh, chose not to do so. So I'm personally indebted to that whale, the fact that I'm still alive. So you reckon the whale made a choice not to land on you and kill you? He had to make an effort to, to not fall forward on us. 
But I also saw or felt uh, something else, and that was pity, and not for himself, but for us, that we could take life so thoughtlessly, so meaninglessly, mercilessly, and for what? What do the what were the Russians killing these whales for? They didn't eat them. You can't eat whale sperm whale meat. You, they killed them for oil, high heat resistant lubricating oil. And one of the things that it was in big demand for in the Soviet Union was for the manufacture and maintenance of uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles. And I said, here we are killing this incredibly beautiful, intelligent, socially complex, self-aware, sentient being for the purpose of making a weapon meant for the mass extermination of human beings. And that's when it struck me. We're insane. While we're talking about the Russians, you were you were almost arrested in Russia, weren't you? You almost ended up in the gulag. Yeah, that was in 1981. We were actually the first people to invade the Soviet Union since World War II. And uh, we knew that the, uh, the Russians were killing whales illegally, but nobody could get the evidence on that. What we suspected was that they were killing whales to provide meat for fur farms uh, in Siberia. So we just went to Siberia uh, in August of 81, landed on the beach in uh, Lorena in, uh, in Siberia. And when we landed, uh, I went ashore with two other crew members. And when we landed, there were, were, were two Soviet soldiers that were patrolling the beach. And uh, we got out of the boat and started filming and they didn't do anything because they assumed, they had to have assumed that we were Russians. Who else would be there doing this? So we filmed for 45 minutes and then we headed back to the boat and the two got into the boat and I was pushing it off and one of the Soviet soldiers approached and he uh, pointed to the, the Zodiac and he said, Astroika, what is that? And I said, at the Zodiac. He said, at the Mercury. And I go, oh. Uh, mercury outboard engine well that was a giveaway <laughs> so I, I turned to push the boat and i said quietly i said what, what's he doing and he said well he's taking his gun down i said well smile and wave i was in the process of pushing the boat off the shore so they smiled and waved, and that was very confusing I, I mean he didn't you know he just ran away to town to get uh, uh support and about oh, an hour later we were cruising down the coast and two helicopter gunships caught out, came out of nowhere. Is this in the Sea Shepherd now? So you got into the big boat. And uh, yeah, we're back on the big boat and they started strafing uh, across their bow with flares and uh, we just ignored them. And uh, about another 45 minutes and then this Soviet frigate just came out of nowhere alongside of us and he raised his flags and tried to signal us and I ignored that. And then he came up over the radio and said, uh, Sea Shepherd, stop your ship and prepare to be boarded by the Soviet Union. I couldn't resist it. I got on the phone. I said, Captain, we don't we don't have room for the Soviet Union. We're, we're not stopping. Now, he didn't know what to do. Now, here's yeah, this would work with the Russians because they are so bureaucratic in that sense that he's not going to make it. He doesn't even know what he's dealing with. So we had flags of Italy and the UK and and uh, everything else up there, US and everything uh, from representing the crew on board. And so he's not going to make a decision until he knows that it's a proper one. So he's on the radio to Moscow, obviously. And uh by the time he got a decision, we were back in U.S. waters and we got away with the evidence, which we presented to the International Whaling Commission. One of your first Sea Shepherd missions was against the Sierra. Can you give yes. me some background to that story and what happened? And 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 we will we will get to the, the the pressing issues. I just want to give the listeners sort of a bit more background that perhaps aren't aware of what you have done in the past and, and where you've come from. Pirate whaling was a big issue. Uh, in uh, the late 70s and what we wanted to nobody is doing anything about it and uh, the International Whaling Commission had condemned it but they weren't taking any action so I decided to go after the most notorious of the of the bunch the Sierra and 
I knew it was operating somewhere between the north coast of Portugal and halfway down to Angola. And uh, so I just headed out uh, from Boston, stopped in the Azores, and then carried on. And the next day, exactly the, uh, at noon the next day, uh, I saw this ship and I saw a big S on the funnel. And I said, wow, that's pretty remarkable that that, that would be the Sierra and all that, all this big ocean. And uh, so I, I moved in on them. Fortunately, we were about a half a knot faster than they were. And we closed the distance. They, they began to run towards the coast of Portugal. Now, my objective right from the beginning was to uh, destroy that ship. That was my, but I had to do it in a way that didn't kill or injure any of their crew. So I had to control the situation. So we chased them all the way into the port of Lachos, which is just outside Porto in Portugal. Now I had a problem. They were drifting in the, in the harbor, and I pulled up alongside and cleared customs, keeping an eye on them. They said they were going to leave. So I said, okay, we're going to leave. And then the Ford Authority said, no, you can't leave until we give you clearance, and that's not going to be for another day. I said, oh, yeah, well, <laughs> we're leaving. So I said to my crew, I said, look, I can't say you're not going to be hurt or injured, but I can guarantee you one thing. You're going to go to prison if you do what I want you to do, and that is we're going to go out and we're going to ram that ship, and uh, we're going to end his career right now. If you don't want to participate, you got 10 minutes, pack your bags, get out on the dock because we're all, we're off. Well, 10 minutes later, 17 of them were on the dock, but fortunately the two that stayed <laughs> both engineers. And so we pulled away from the dock and headed out towards the Sierra and uh, came at them full speed. And I hit them across the bow to give them a warning blow. And then I came around the stern and at 360 degree turn and hit them at an angle uh, just midship where I knew there wouldn't be any crew quarters. And it was a, where the refrigerated hold was. Uh, the captain uh, came out and uh, he was uh, started shooting, but uh, you know wasn't too concerned about that. We have a steel hull and everything, and, and and so we hit them and split them over to the water line, and then we uh, and we decided, okay, well, better get out of here. So we headed north, but we were pursued by a Portuguese navy vessel, and I made a error I shouldn't have given in, but uh, I, I went back with them and they escorted us back, and I was brought before the port captain. And, he charged me with gross criminal negligence. And I said, well, Captain, there wasn't anything neg negligent about this. Uh, we, we hit that ship directly where I intended to hit it. It wasn't negligent. It was deliberate. <laughs> he, he laughed and he said, well, the other problem, I, I don't know who owns that ship. And until I find out who owns that ship, then you're free to go. Didn't you go to Iceland and actually ask to be arrested? Yeah, well, after we uh, sunk half the Icelandic whaling fleet, and uh, I sent a letter to the Icelandic authorities saying, yes, we did this. And uh, if you have any charges against us, considering your whaling operations are illegal, uh, I'd be I'd love to go to trial. And let's put this on. Let's get this into the public forum. Let's get this into the courts. Uh, they did. They, they didn't answer. Me. I couldn't get an answer out of them. So uh, in January of 88, I, I flew to Iceland and demanded to be arrested which was really funny because I was met by all these police officers and the chief immigration officer at the airport. And the chief immigration officer says, how long do you intend to stay in Iceland? I said, I, I don't know, five minutes, five days, five years. <laughs> you tell me. Well, we have to go to interrogation. I said, great, let's go to interrogation. Went to interrogation. They said, are you saying that you sunk these ships? Yeah, you know we sunk them. We're going to sink the other two up the first opportunity. Well, then they put me in jail. And that next morning, two police officers escorted me to the airport, put me on a plane and flew with me back to New York. And the chief uh, and the justice minister stood up that morning. He says, who the hell does he think he is? He comes into our country and demands to be arrested. Get him out of here. They didn't want to put me on trial. So what we did was not illegal because there were never any charges brought against us. So there was no crime committed. And you've, you've made some pretty powerful enemies. The Japanese have even labeled you as a racist, haven't they? 
you know, we had called a racist by anybody who's a whaler. Uh, the Norwegians call us racist. In fact, I think was the head of the High North Alliance said, you know, Watson's a racist. And, you know, the only way, the only people who are against whaling are, are Anglo-Saxons. I said, really? Oh, that's a good one. Yes. My grandfather's from Denmark. I don't know how that works into this equation. But why did, why did the Japanese call you racist? That's their, you know, if you oppose Japanese whaling, you oppose Japanese culture. Therefore, you're a racist. It's as simple as simple as that. What about the dolphins in, in Japan? Do you know much about Taiji? Yeah, we uh, we were the first people to expose that in 2003. Uh, I had to send a crew over there to investigate it. And the footage we took was horrendous. That was before they started covering it up and everything. And that got worldwide attention on that. It's inside Japan, so you can't really do much. But we made sure that nobody it was going to take place out of sight and out of mind. So we sent numerous people there every year. But the Japanese then finally retaliated and uh, then banned anybody who was a member of Sea Shepherd from even entering Japan. What do you know about the dolphins in Taiji? The rounding up of dolphins in Taiji began in the 60s, at the same time that, that was the emergence of the orca and dolphin area. The dolphins are the main reason that that, that happens is to capture dolphins for uh, theme parks, uh, for, for the entertainment industry, really. Uh, I call it a form of slavery, really. The average price of a dolphin uh, on the market is $200,000. So every dolphin that they can find and sell to the, uh, the aquarium industry is $200,000. So what they do is they drive in hundreds of dolphins, dozens of dolphins, whatever they find, and they drive them into uh, the cove uh, in Taiji. Then they select the best specimens for resale to the aquarium industry, and then they kill the rest. Well, the ones that they kill, then they, that, that meat goes into, it either goes to dog food or they sell it to school programs or whatever. They don't make any money. If it was just the meat trade, it, it, it wouldn't. The industry couldn't exist. But all these guys who are fishing the dolphins in uh, Taiji, they're driving expensive cars and they're making a lot of money. And it comes from the aquarium trade. There's just uh, uh, no doubt about that at all. As long as people keep buying the tickets and going to these places, and uh, they're going to continue to kill those dolphins. So people should never go to an aquarium. No, I, I wrote a book. Uh, just last year called Orcopedia, which is really, uh, it lists every single orca that's ever been caught since 1961. How many have died? 256 of them have died in captivity and the present status of the ones that are there now. And uh, here's a, a, an animal that lives a lifespan of about 100 years, same as people really, uh, but they don't live more than 17 years on average in, in captivity. We saw some of that on the Seaspiracy documentary that was on Netflix. What did you make of that documentary? Well, we were working with them on that documentary for the last five years. We're, we're actually co-producers. And uh, I think it's an excellent documentary. And what, what's incredible about it is that it was trending on Netflix, uh, number one in the UK, uh, in the top 10 in many countries. It got to the point, it was, you know, we knew that this fishing industry was going to attack it, and they did, but we expected that. But it got people thinking and uh, about, you know, just what's going on in the ocean. The fact that we are, every single commercial fishery in the world is in a state of collapse. And uh, this just can't go on. It's it's a finite resource. And um, they're basically, they're um, strip mining the ocean. <laughs> the, the, you know, the fishing industry would like you to believe that when you go and get your fish and chips or when you go into a, a restaurant, whatever, that that fish was caught by a bunch of really hardworking young people working long hours and to bring it back for you. But the reality is super trawlers and 100 mile long long lines, 100 mile long drift nets and gill nets, giant purse seiners with nets so big that you could take three school buses you could put into them. 
So this is, and bottom draggers, which are just destroying the ocean and everything. There's a big difference between what people picture as a fisherman and the corporate industrialized fishing operations, which mm. are destroying the ocean. Are there some fishermen that are fishing responsibly that people can get their fish from? Or is it all fishermen? Well, artisanal and indigenous fishing communities around the world, yes, this is what they have to do. They're not making a very big impact. I mean, they probably take about 3% of, of all the fish that's taken. But industrialized fishing is a, is a problem. If we don't shut down highly mechanized, heavy gear industrialized fishing operations, then the ocean ecology is going to collapse. Uh, I have no doubt about that at all. When you say that ocean ecology is going to collapse, what does that actually mean in the scheme of what that means for the planet? Well, if you consider the planet as a spaceship, which is what it is, uh, we're on this trip around the Milky Way galaxy, and every spaceship has a life support system, and that provides us with the food we eat and the air we breathe and regulates climate and temperature. The ocean is that life support system. Phytoplankton provides up to 70% of the oxygen that we breathe. And since 1950, there's been a 40% diminishment in phytoplankton populations in the ocean. Now, that life support system is run and maintained by a crew, a crew of species on this planet, uh, ranging from microbes all the way up to the great whales. And uh, we humans, well, we're not crew members. We're, we're passengers. We're having a wonderful time entertaining ourselves. But uh, what we are doing is murdering the crew. We're killing them killing them at an incredible rate. And there's only so many crew you can kill before the machinery of the life support system begins to collapse. And I think that that's what's happening right now. Some scientists have said, uh, you know, well, you know, the, the, the prediction that the, it's going to collapse by 2048, well, that's been debunked and it's only going to be reduced by 88%. So you, you don't know what you're talking about. I said, oh, great. So it's only going to be reduced by 88% and it's not going to be 100%. Does it really matter if it's 2048 or 2078? The fact is it's collapsing. And they said, well, these scientists say, you know, you can find scientists to back either side. Just look at climate change. Scientists who are for the deniers and scientists who say that it's a real problem. You know, I, I actually have a word for the scientists who work for the fishing industry. I call them biostitutes. <laughs> what, what can actually be done? Like, is there anything in your mind or any way that we can sustainably fish? Yeah, if you go out and catch it yourself, I guess uh, that, that's about the only way. Uh, mechanized industrialized fishing operations are, are the problem. What about when there's when they create like reserves and like if you have a fishing reserve and then there's overspill from that fishing reserve and you fish those that overspill would that would that uh, I don't really see that happening because here's the problem with fish reserves marine reserves and sanctuaries that's where the poachers go the thing with sea shepherd uh, we're not a protest organization mm. not even an organization we're actually a global movement we're in 42 different countries and they're all independent entities but what we we're an anti poaching movement and we we operate within the boundaries of the law and the boundaries of practicality we've never mm. been convicted of felony we've never been defeated in any civil court case and we've gone to court quite a few times greenpeace isn't a big fan of sea shepherd though is it no but we're not big fans of greenpeace i've got a quote here it's a quote that you've heard before sea shepherd does more harm than good for the environmental cause and causes the whole movement to be labelled as a terrorist movement. So it, it basically, they're saying you're extreme. You're too. You're almost. You're too far to. You know. You can't. You can't bring in the middle man. The the, the people in the middle. It's only the extremists well, that are going to listen to you. 
you know, after we sank those ships in Iceland and Greenpeace attacked us, I was doing a talk show in Vancouver and somebody called in a bomb threat to protest my violence, which I thought was somewhat strange. But uh, the, uh, we had to evacuate the building and a reporter said, Greenpeace has just condemned you as a terrorist. What's your response? And I said, oh, what do you expect from the Avon ladies of the environmental movement anyway? <laughs> They've never forgiven me for that. You don't walk down the street and see a woman being raped and do nothing. You don't watch, walk down the street and see a kitten being stomped on the ground and do nothing except for take pictures and hang a banner. That's not what we do. You know, we intervene. That's what we are. We're interventionists. Uh, Greenpeace is big business. They bring in 350 million euros a year. We bring in 12. And yet we have 11 ships. They have three. We do more campaigns than they do. So they may, they're good at raising money, but we're good at doing the, uh, you know, taking the action that needs to be taken to stop these illegal activities. Greenpeace condemns our, our activities when we were with Greenpeace. For instance, Greenpeace condemned our operations against the, the Canadian seal hunt and actually had the audacity to apologize for what we did when we were with Greenpeace. Talk me through that. Talk me through that situation and what you did uh, with the seal clubbing because you were quite, um, there, there was a situation there where involving handcuffs where you got quite involved in what was going on and a seal club and all sorts you got right in the mixer there when you were working with Greenpeace and um, yeah. this is kind of a turning point for you wasn't it with with them I handcuffed myself to a winch line you know another Gandhian approach which is what Greenpeace was into at the time uh, and but you know what they did is they just pulled me across the ice through the waters and up the side of the vessel and then through a gauntlet of kicking uh, of sealers and uh, but one of the things I did do uh, there is that I had prior to that is I walked up to a sealer and literally pulled the club out of his hand before he could kill a seal and threw it in the water. And Greenpeace later condemned that. They, they accused me of committing uh, a theft of property and violence. Uh, and I said, you know, I was there to save the life of a seal. I don't know what you thought I was going to be doing there. But uh, if you consider a seal club to be sacred property, well, that's your problem. Are they still clubbing seals? Was that stopped? Well, no. Yes and no. Um, they do. The quota is 450000 a year. Uh, but in 2008, we finally managed to undermine the markets. So nobody's buying them. So the only reason the seal hunt continues to exist is because of large subsidies from the Canadian government. And the kill is about 40000 a year. So uh, the quota of 450000 the actual kill about 40000 And I think it's dying. Uh, it's going to die out. Why do they kill the seals? Just for the fur? Primarily, they kill them because it's, they're subsidized right now, uh, but there is no market for the pelts. Uh, originally, the seals were killed for their fat, for the, for margarine, things like this. And then they, uh, when that market died out, they went for the for the fur market. And uh, but there's really there's no there's no real demand for seal products now. If it wasn't for the subsidies, it wouldn't exist. Just going back on what you're saying about the money that Greenpeace has got, because they are quite visible. Like you see them pop up every now and again on tv or on facebook with a video saying how bad a situation is mm -hmm. like, what do they spend their money on if they're not out there actually stopping something from ha happening like, so if you give money to greenpeace where does it go what, ha what happens well 70 percent of it goes back into fundraising you know they recycle it in and they got your administration about uh, well over a thousand employees they got office buildings in around the world and uh, they got three ships which really go from port to port doing fundraising campaigns i can't even remember the last time they did an actual uh intervention they've ever done an intervention they didn't do much when they're down in the southern ocean uh, except for criticizing us they're they're a feel-good organization people join greenpeace to feel good you know like i'm a member of greenpeace i must be part of the solution 
that kind of thing. Uh, but all that money, they accomplish very little for it. We don't, we don't do fundraising. We don't do door to door. We don't do direct mail campaigns. Uh, people come to us and, uh, therefore we have a very loyal support base in that. Our real strength is in the passion of our volunteers. Do you guys ever, when you're talking about the Southern Ocean, can, can you, have you got any situations where you guys have actually been doing, been at the same place at the same time? And I read somewhere that, you guys were fighting the whales and they got their photo and, and then they left kind of thing. Is that, is that kind of the situation with with those guys or? Well, they did that. And, uh, you know, I remember one time we tried to cooperate with them. Uh, one time we found the Japanese fleet and the Greenpeace ships were about 200 miles away. And I radioed to them and said, uh, we have the coordinates for the Japanese fleet here. If you want to come on and join us, the captain, and this is actually on the BBC program. They did this thing called battleship Antarctica. The captain called a meeting and said, well, Sea Shepherd's just given us coordinates, but we're not going to have anything to do with those bastards. So, no. And then when they, uh, a couple of days later, they, we did come into the same place and everything, and they were trying to, uh, you know, they were criticizing us for our actions. Don't you call them the other whaling industry sometimes? Well, it is a whaling industry in a way because you're making money off of, uh, off, the, uh, off of the killing of whales. And then they went and sent their ship to Japan and said that we love the Japanese people and actually sat down and ate whale meat with them to show their solidarity with them and, and their culture. And I go, oh, well, you know. <laughs> wow. Looking at the overfishing situation, I've heard you talk about the Somali pirates mm. and the situation that they got themselves into. I wouldn't mind some background into so your thoughts on whether they because you've got some interesting ideas on whether they are the good guys or the bad guys, because obviously they were betrayed um, as as we would see them as the bad guys. But you've got a lot more to say on that, don't you? Well, I don't see them as good guys or bad guys, but I do know why they're doing what they're doing, because the Asian and European fishing fleets came down and plundered the coast of Somalia and uh, impoverished all these fishermen and forced them into piracy as, uh, as the only thing that they could do as an alternative. The same thing's happening right now in the Gulf of Guinea, and you're seeing piracy emerging now from Senegal and uh, the Congo and Mauritania. Uh, because of impoverished fishing communities. And they're, they're, it's the European and Asian fishing fleets which are creating the situation uh, where these pirates you know, have nowhere else to go. Mm. What's the solution? Well, the solution is to leave them alone, uh, leave the, you know, stop uh, plundering their resources. You know, the Chinese fleets, the Spanish fleets, the, you know, the Russian fleets are just taking everything down there. I mean, we've uh, stopped 65 poaching vessels uh, in West African waters over the last year and a half. And, uh, you know, most of them are Chinese. So what does, what does the local community get out of that? Because that wouldn't the, wouldn't they get some money back from allowing those ships into their water? Well, some politicians might, but the local community isn't getting anything out of it. If you look at the Gambia with the, uh, they said the Japanese set up a fish meal company there and they say, well, we're providing jobs, but it's a horribly polluting industry. And it's, uh, the, the local fishermen can't catch anything. They're being driven more and more into poverty. The single greatest threat to fishing communities around the world is industrialized fishing operations. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Some places will, or some things that you will buy in the shop will have eco labels or they'll say that this fish was taken from a from an area that you can fish from. What are your thoughts on on those organizations and, and, and whether or not they are providing sort of peace of mind and that things have been a little bit more sustainably fished out there? There is no sustainable corporate fishing operations anywhere in the world. If you look at Polynesia for hundreds of years, the shamans there would have this thing called kapu, that anybody caught fishing in a kapu area, say a bay was declared kapu 20 years, anybody caught fishing there, it was a death penalty. And uh, people say, oh, that's a little extreme to kill somebody for going fishing. He said, from their point of view, they knew that if the fish disappeared, they would die. Their entire survival depended upon those fish being there. So they took it very seriously. Today, there is no kapu areas. Uh, there's nowhere for the fish to hide. There's no nowhere for them to recover. And uh, so there is no sustainable fishing. It just doesn't exist unless you, you know, you're a small community in India or Africa or, you know, or some of you go out there and catch your own fish off the coast or something. Mm. But other than that, there is no sustainable fishing. What about the MSC blue tick? Well, as it seemed in Seaspiracy, you know, they didn't even want to talk to uh, the filmmakers because it's, it's a fraud. It just really is, you know. It, back in 1992, I attended the United Nations Conference on the Environment in, in Brazil. And that was when Prime Minister Gro Harlem Brundtland from Norway, she coined the phrase sustainability. What does that mean? It means business as usual. Let's just slap that word sustainable on every damn thing. Well, forest products, fishing products, everything. We'll just slap that thing on there. And there's no way to really prove it. <laughs> you know, mm. we can track uh, where the fish is caught at sea. Uh, there's so much transshipment at sea. It's caught here, sent to a vessel here, and uh, it's impossible to track. Nobody knows that the fish, if the fish on your plate was caught legally or illegally. Are some of those organizations not doing some good work, though? Trying to, you know, call out illegal fishing here and there? I think that Earth Island Institute is trying to do what they're trying to do the good thing. But the problem is, is that they can't sell the, uh, the idea that it's a dolphin-free tuna, when they themselves admit that it is not dolphin-free. You can't guarantee that. People are bribed. The observers sometimes are even killed. They go missing. There's just no way to prove it. So slapping a label on a can is not proof that the uh, the product is dolphin-free. And what I'm looking for is tuna-free tuna. Free tuna. <laughs> you know, uh, What are we doing to the tuna? And, uh, and bluefin tuna has been reduced by 90% from, you know, and then we look at northern cod, the entire fishery collapsed in 92. Orange ruffy fishery collapsed in the 90s also. Hasn't recovered. Orange ruffies lived to up to about 200 years old, don't they, as well? Yeah, they, they, they don't become sexually mature until they're 45, and they live to be 200 years old. So they can't keep up with the demand. There's simply, there's simply no place for 8 billion fish-eating, meat-eating primates on this mm. planet isn't no place we kill 65 billion animals a year it's the single greatest contributor to greenhouse gas emissions single greatest contributor to dead zones in the ocean and the single greatest contributor to groundwater pollution it's it's a real problem uh, you know when people say well we're hunter gatherers and you know we're omnivores and everything yeah that was fine thirty thousand years ago <laughs> you know is there a balance though like if we all were as noble as you are and and we were all vegan wouldn't that be a lot harder to feed the planet? No, I think it, it would free up more land to grow more food. 
you know, when you consider how much resources go into raising a, a pound of beef, right? you can do 100 uh, pounds of uh, wheat you know, for that and uh, using the same amount of water. So it's a plant-based uh, diet is very practical and uh, it's very doable. And in fact, it's, a, it's the future. I mean, if you look at any science fiction film, Star Trek or whatever, they're all vegans. <laughs> also, about 40% of the fish that's taken from the sea isn't eaten by people. It's fed to pigs and chickens and domesticated salmon. You know, it takes 70 fish caught from the ocean to raise one salmon on a, on a salmon farm. So it's incredibly uh, wasteful. We live in a world where chickens eat more fish than all the world's albatrosses and puffins. Chicken eat we, fish? Yeah, they feed the fish meal, which is rendered into fish meal as a primary food uh, on factory farms. You know, and uh, so we live in a world where domestic house cats eat more fish than all the seals in the North Atlantic Ocean. 2.8 million tons a year of fish goes to cat food. I mean, this is a world out of balance. You do quite a bit of work with sharks as well, which is quite, you know, on the face of it, it's ugh, controversial is the wrong word, but sharks have a, have a reputation and people will wonder, why, why sharks? Why are you doing so much work with sharks? Oh, it's an undeserved reputation. We kill 100 million sharks a year, and on average, five people a year are killed by sharks. More people are killed by uh, uh, Coke machines falling on them every year, average of nine. So Coke machines are actually more dangerous than sharks. In fact, it's more dangerous to play golf than it is to go surfing or scuba diving because more people die on golf courses every year from bee stings and uh, and lightning strikes. So, you know, it's just how, how you frame it. Sharks are not dangerous. And as Kelly Slater, uh, you know, one of the world's greatest surfers said, if you don't like sharks then stay the hell out of the ocean, it's their home. <laughs> the sharks are under threat, aren't they? They're endangered. Oh, many species are, yes, they're extremely endangered in that. And, and they're not dangerous. I've swum with great white sharks. I've swum with tiger sharks. Have you? Yeah, this is not that uncommon. Really? Got a lot of, oh, that's sharks. pretty uncommon. Talk, talk me through swimming with a great white shark. That's awesome. There's so many people that I know who have done it. Really? And, uh, who have not only done it, but filmed it. How close did you get? Oh, right alongside. Just swim right alongside. Well, so great white. It's just like swimming along it, with you. When you see these great whites attacking the shark cages, you have to keep in mind that they're throwing blood into the water. <laughs> you know, they're actually attracting those sharks in order to get a spectacle. They want that kind of uh, image and everything. But if sharks will not attack uh, unprovoked. So when you're swimming with a great white shark, can you talk me through that whole... That, that whole process, because that's fascinating. I, I've never spoken to anyone that swum with a great white shark in, in the wild. Oh, well, actually, there's a good If you get uh, the film Oceans by Jack Perrin, uh, there's an incredible footage in there of, uh, of one of uh, the divers swimming right alongside, and the shark just looks at him and just keeps going. And that was my experience, too. First of all, they don't want to eat you. And I'll tell you why they don't want to eat you. you. You don't have enough calories. You know, <laughs> great whites go after seals and elephant sharks, chock full of calories and everything. You're just a waste of their time. And usually when you find that sharks bite a surfer or something, they don't eat them. It's a bite. And they say, oh, like made a mistake. You know, they don't really like neoprene or wetsuits, so <laughs> they back off. Uh, but it's it's usually a case of mistaken identity and everything. You are in their element. You're a strange thing. And you look like, and, and a surfer from the bottom looks like a seal. The most dangerous animal in the ocean are, are human beings. Could sharks be gone in the next 20 years? Like. That's that's a, that's a theory that I've read. Absolutely, and if they do, it will be devastating for the ecology of the ocean. Where are we at right now with with sharks? Like how far away are we from this happening? It depends upon the species, of course. Many species have been reduced. 
reduce. But I don't have those exact figures on that. But I do know that uh, here's one of the problems. What three areas in the world are most notorious for shark attacks? Queensland, West Australia, and La Reunion Island in the Indian Ocean. And why is that? What do those three places have in common? Shark control programs, where they actually try to stop sharks. They use shark nets, they kill them, that kind of thing. What that does, when you kill, say, in La Reunion, when you kill the sharks around the, in that marine reserves around there, in the, with, around the sharks, you kill them, you now create a vacuum for other sharks to come in. Now, the new sharks coming in, say bull sharks, for example, those new sharks coming in, they're going to be very territorial because they, they want to come in and assert their territorial rights. They wouldn't have done that before if those other sharks were there, which were kind of mellow sharks because they were in their element. So these new sharks come in and they're going to fight for that territory, making them far more aggressive. I've been saying for years that if you want to cut down shark attacks in these places, just leave the sharks alone. They are part of the ecology. What we're doing is disrupting the ecosystem, disrupting the, the relationships between the sharks and the other fish in the ocean. We just have to leave them alone. The, nature maintains itself, always has, always will. What do you think is going to happen to the ocean? Are we, what, are you, what are your sort of predictions over the next few years? Well, unless we turn it around, there's a good possibility of, uh, of ecological collapse in the ocean. And uh, the worst thing that could happen is... Uh, even further diminishment of phytoplankton, which is the absolute basic foundation of all life on this planet. Phytoplankton is essential. Without phytoplankton, we do not live on this planet. It's our main source of uh, oxygen production. You know, trees only do 20%. What can I do at home to help that doesn't involve not eating fish and doesn't involve not eating meat? Well, uh, the, what I say is that everybody can make a difference. And the strength of an ecosystem is in diversity. Therefore, the strength of any uh, movement has to be in diversity. So that doesn't matter whether your approach is uh, education, litigation, legislation, or direct action, or protest, whatever. It doesn't matter. It's that diversity that makes a difference. So if we all each look at, uh, harness our passion to imagination and courage and use our skills and abilities, we can all make a difference. We all have the capacity to change the world. Because of Diane Fossey, we still have mountain gorillas in Rwanda. Because of David Wingate, the Bermuda storm petrel, a little bird in Bermuda, did not go extinct. There's so many people have made a difference there. And I can't think of a more noble pursuit than because you intervened a species did not go extinct or a habitat was protected. But it is dangerous work. I mean, just last week, Rory Young, uh, you know, a ranger protecting elephants uh, in Africa, he was murdered along with two uh, Spanish journalists. And in the last 15 years, 1,500 environmentalists have been murdered. You don't hear much about it, but unless they're somebody really well-known. Jairo Mora Sandoval was killed in May 31st, 2013, for protecting turtles in Costa Rica. He was murdered on the beach. The Costa Rican government didn't do anything about it. We had to push them and, you know, to, to get them to arrest the perpetrators. And finally, we were able to get some justice done. But uh, for the most part, these murders go, uh, they're not punished. Do you think that governments can be to blame for a, a lot of what's going on in the oceans? I mean, like, do you think, for example, the British government do enough to to protect the marine life and life in general in, in the ocean? No, no. Governments in general are not doing very much at all. In fact, they're part of the problem. The subsidies, the incredibly huge subsidies that they give to the industrialized fishing operations are what keeps this going. 
In order to, to have industrialized fishing, you need $100 million ships and incredible technology, which means requires getting incredibly large loans from banks, which means that you're now in debt to these banks, which you have to catch more and more fish to pay off that. It's, a, it's the economics of extinction, really. And here's the other thing, too, is that as a species becomes diminished, its value goes up. That scarcity translates into demand. So, uh, for instance, Mitsubishi as a company has 10-year supply of bluefin tuna in their warehouses in Japan. They could stop fishing today for the next 10 years and still supply their market. But they really? won't do it. And the reason they won't do it is because if they started doing that and bluefin populations began to recover, then the value of the commodity in the warehouses will start to decline. And uh, the bluefin is already the most expensive fish on the planet. So they need that scarcity in order to justify the demand. Now, what if it goes extinct? Mitsubishi doesn't care. They've now got a product in their warehouses, which is priceless. And they'll just reinvest it, short-term investment for short-term gain and reinvest it into something else. I mean, automobiles or computers or whatever. Wow. So bluefin tuna is like, it, that's that's their kind of nest egg. Yeah. I mean, you know, they, every year the first bluefin goes to markets. Some of them sold up to, one fish sold up to $3 million. And uh, the average price of a bluefin in Japan is about $70,000. Do you think if like the the navies of each country actually patrolled their marine reserves, that would make a difference? It would, and I think that many uh, navies are now looking at in that direction. What we do is actually taught at the United States Naval War College. There's a class on what we do. Really, uh, one of our captains is a former chief of staff, an admiral from the uh, Italian Navy. When he retired, he came to captain one of our vessels. And that. So there, there's certainly the, an interest there. You know, we carry uh, Navy personnel on our ships, Mexico, our partnerships with Mexico, uh, with uh, Gabon, with Liberia, with uh, Ghana. Uh, these guys are on our ships. They're the ones who do the uh, boarding and the, uh, the enforcement. So there is, there is that involvement. And that's happening more and more. It, we haven't changed, but I think that what we've been doing for so long has become a little mainstream now because uh, people are seeing the need for it. Mm. And the reason uh, we're actually being invited by governments to, to, to help out. What's the big fight that you're involved in right now? What's Sea Shepherd doing that people need to know about? Well, for the last seven years, we've uh, been trying to stop the prevention of the Paquita porpoise in the uh, Mexico Sea of Cortez. We have three ships there right now. I'm quite confident that the Paquita would now be extinct if it wasn't for our interventions. What is that? Uh, it's a, it's a, the smallest, most endangered porpoise on the planet. There's only 22 of them left. But we've confiscated 150,000 meters of illegal nets from the uh, Paquita refuge in the Sea of Cortez. We have one vessel right now patrolling in the west coast of Africa, and uh, we, we replace it. We have two vessels that go in and out, and they never know where they're going to be. The waters of Sierra Leone, Liberia, whatever. And we every time we go down there, we're catching poachers. One of our vessels has uh, been operating in the Bay of Biscay to focus on uh, the killing of dolphins by the French trawler fleet. The French trawlers are, are killing dolphins? 10,000 a year. They're a bycatch. A bycatch of the, the, the caught in the nets. And it's illegal. What they're doing is illegal, but the French government and the EU have not taken action. So we've, we've done things like uh, we take the bodies that we find and we, we brought them and dropped them in front of the Eiffel Tower, in front of the uh, National Assembly in order to, you know, to focus attention on this. We have two ships in the Mediterranean that are confiscating fish aggregating devices, which are set illegally and doing anti-poaching patrols there. We have one vessel right now operating off of Peru uh, to look for uh, 
illegal activities amongst that vast Chinese uh, trawling fleet, which is in the eastern tropical Pacific, about 400 ships that are there. So we're, we're, we're involved uh, with it there. We're also involved with uh, removing plastic debris from remote places. We took 40 tons of uh, plastic debris, fishing gear mainly from uh, Cocos Island of Costa Rica, removed it from Cocos Keeling Island in the Indian Ocean, and cleaned up beaches in northern Australia, which are practically inaccessible otherwise. So we focus on those difficult places. So it's uh, we also shut down 17 salmon farms in British Columbia last year, too. And uh, so we've got a lot of campaigns. I can't even keep track of the campaigns that we have. Salmon farms are uh, another one, aren't they? They're, they're pretty rancid, especially in um, the ones I know about uh, in Scotland. We're working with Don Staniford there to oppose those ones in Scotland, but we're also opposing them in Tasmania, Tasmania, Chile, and British Columbia and other places. And the thing with salmon farms is they're highly invasive. British Columbia, for example, you take an Atlantic salmon, which does not belong in the Pacific Ocean, and you put it into these concentrated areas uh, on the, in the water. Now, that what that becomes a vector for spreading viruses and diseases to indigenous salmon populations and also spreading parasites like salmon lice. But it's also extremely wasteful, incredibly polluting, chemically intensive, antibiotically intensive, and all of those things end up in, in, in the environment. In fact, the, the flesh of a farm-raised salmon would be unedible if it was just left the way it is because it's a dirty white meat. Nobody's going to buy that when they buy their salmon. Salmon get their color from eating krill. And the only way to reproduce that is they put dye in the food pellets to dye their meat while they're still alive. So it's an artificial coloring that's put into the live fish. So all salmon that you see on the shelf in, in the UK, it was white, has been artificially made to be pink. Yeah, well, they're still alive, actually. So they, when they kill the fish, it, it looks or it's more orangey than it, than it is anything yeah, else. Yeah, yeah. Farm-raised salmon is marketed as Atlantic salmon or Faroese salmon or Scottish salmon or whatever, but uh, you know, it's not uh, indigenous salmon. The only healthy salmon populations are really in Alaska, uh, where salmon farms are prohibited. If people want to get on board with Sea Shepherd and want to get involved with you guys and help you out where, where do they go to find out more about you guys and and potentially join your cause seashepherd.org is our website we're on facebook of course and uh, people can uh, volunteer to crew on the ships or they can volunteer shore volunteers or they can just be supporters it's uh, really a lot of choices there or even clean beaches <laughs> i'd love to get on board one of your ships but i reckon i'll be one of those 17 people that jumped off before if you if i knew something bad was going to happen in 42 years of operations we've never had anybody injured and certainly nobody killed yeah well i ain't going to russia with you <laughs> <laughs> captain paul watson thank you very much for coming on the show and thank you very much for listening don't forget to leave a review but more importantly give this a share and tag us on social media